Welcome to another edition of the Morning Devotional. My name is Pastor William Hill. I'm the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church located in Evansville, Indiana. It's great to have you here for a Monday, March 13th, 2023. This is edition number 46 of season 8. We are still working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we come to the second half of paragraph 2 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. Let's pray first and then we'll consider um, the conclusion of paragraph number two of chapter eight. Let's pray. Father, as we now come to your word and we come to these very important truths, we ask that your spirit would guide us and direct us in all things. We thank you for the way in which you have revealed yourself in your word. We thank you for your word, how it teaches us about your glory and about the work of your son. We pray that you would forgive us as we approach you even this morning, this day, uh, that you would forgive us for our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, in the Friday edition, we began looking at um, paragraph number two. We um, uh, considered more or less the first half of the paragraph. Today, we're going to just briefly consider the second half of this paragraph, a, a, a section that is uh, very complicated, I think, in some ways for most people to grasp. I'll do the best I can to explain matters related to this second paragraph. Uh, but let me just read paragraph number two of, of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter eight. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator? between God and man. Now, in the Friday edition, we considered matters related to the essential properties and common infirmities of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was a man indeed, and he suffered in many of the ways that we do, yet without sin. So he was tempted of Satan. He got hungry, weary, tired. He had emotions. He cried. He wept. He rejoiced. Um, He prayed. Many of the things that we do uh, and experience in this life Uh, he did indeed experience that he might be a sympathetic high priest and that we might find then therefore through him grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Today we come to this second section of the paragraph where the two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Now this is known um, by scholars as the hypostatic union. It's a relatively complicated but yet not complicated subject. What we have here is one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, with two natures, the nature of deity and the nature of humanity, yet without sin. Now, it's very important that we remember that while he was fully man, he was not a man in the sense that you and I are are. Our, our men, um, <clears throat> in that he did not have a fallen nature. And the confession makes that clear when it says that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so he was protected. The human nature was protected 
uh, from original sin due to his supernatural conception and birth. <clears throat> but he is still one person. He is not two people. Uh, he is one person with two natures, distinct natures. That is to say, one being the nature of God, the nature of deity, fully and completely, without question, the God of heaven and earth, as well as humanity that he added to his deity, he added to himself when he took to himself human uh, flesh. Now, Chad Van Dixhorn does give us some help here on page 112 of his commentary on the confession of faith. He says here, how are we to understand the divinity and humanity of Christ? How do they relate in the one person that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I think we need to remember the words of the angel. The one to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1.35 To put it differently, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians 2 and verse 9. Or as Paul puts the mystery to the Roman Christians, we can trace a human ancestry of Christ, and at the same time we remember that he is God overall, Romans 9, verse 5. The Bible consistently refers to two whole, perfect, and distinct natures of Jesus Christ. There is the Godhead, or deity, and there is the manhood, or humanity. Jesus was truly human. Humans are able to die. Christ died for sins, 1 Peter 3:18. Yet this really was God who was manifest in the flesh. Again, a real man was justified in the spirit and seen of angels. A real God was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 These two were inseparably joined together in one person. There was no conversion. The divinity was not lost in humanity or humanity in divinity. There was no composition. The incarnation did not result in some new creature that was neither God nor man. In fact, there was no confusion between the human nature and divine nature at all. What we must believe is that there is one person who is very God and very man. He is our one Christ. And so we can say with Paul that God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, truly was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and truly was declared to be the Son of God with power. He is our Messiah, and so we trust in his salvation, and we pray in his name, confessing with all Christians through all ages that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot there, I realize and I understand, but maybe this will help, I don't know, if we consider something from the larger catechism, when we consider this God-man, who uh, is the only mediator between God and men? We can turn uh, to larger catechism number question number questions 37, 38, 39, and 40. Let me just read and just unpack a little bit of these uh, just very briefly. It's not the nature of my devotionals to get into weed, wade into really deep theological discussions. Um, however, this is important enough to cover. The larger catechism, question number 37, asks, How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. Okay, so we've seen this already. This is the virgin birth. The necessity of the virgin birth is essential to our Christian faith. Without it, we would have no Christian faith. 
Question 38, why was it requisite that the mediator <clears throat> should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Okay, so God's, his deity upheld him during that onslaught of the infinite wrath and justice that God poured out on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, how would he be able to sustain the infinite wrath of God if he were not God? You and I could not sustain that, but he can. And so his human nature, his deity upheld his human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. And to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Question 39, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? This is the other side of things now. One person, two natures. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. Okay, so he had to, as man, he, he accomplished the covenant of works that we've already considered he did what the first Adam did not do, and he did it in our nature, that he might then represent us before a holy God. He have a, to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. That is to say that because he was a man like you and me, yet without sin, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, our struggles, our temptations. He, there's no one else like him in all of the universe that is really, truly able to understand the struggles that you and I experience. Each and every day, we can cry out to a Savior who knows what it is like. He, is, he himself has cried those things, and we are able then, therefore, to do the same to a sympathetic high priest. We, we have friends in this world, undoubtedly, that have experienced similar things in, in, our, in, in life that we experience. And, of course, we find it a little more comforting to talk about matters with others who have had those same struggles. In the same sense, but in a much greater sense, the Lord Jesus Christ has had those struggles and you're able to confide, to pray, to plead with Him for help in your time of need. That we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. That's Hebrews 4. Question 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on us as the works of the whole person. Put simply, only the perfect Lamb of God, only God himself who is infinitely perfect and holy and righteous and good is able to satisfy a holy, righteous, infinitely good God. And he had to do it in our nature in order that it might then represent or atone for our own sin. Not his sin, for he had none, but for ours. And so this is, in summary, aspects of the hypostatic union. I've left you the references on the screen at the beginning of the video. I've mentioned those references. You can look them up. Matthew 16, 16, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Romans 1, 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So, in some sense, this is hard, I think, for many to wrap their mind around. 
but this is what the Bible plainly teaches, and the necessity of it is given to us in exposition in our larger catechism. And so it's useful, I think, for you to consider those questions that I've mentioned from the larger catechism, to ponder them, to look up the, the scripture proofs of them, and to then reflect upon this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he has done. He, he, he set aside his, um, his, his um, eternal glory that he had with his Father, that he might take to himself humanity, that he might uh, serve our interests in giving his life a ransom for many. But he did that as God, that it might, uh, might withstand the justice that was ours, that, was, that, that infinite wrath that should have been poured out on me and poured out on you was poured out on Christ. And he was able to withstand that wrath because he was indeed the God of all, of all eternity. Well, I trust these times are helpful for you. I hope they are. If you have any comments or questions, you can leave me a note. The way to reach me is there before you on the screen. And so until the Tuesday edition, when we begin to look at paragraph three, we'll consider the entirety of paragraph three on the Tuesday edition. May the Lord help you today. May you walk in his ways. May you give glory and honor to this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who took to himself your sin and withstood the very judgment of a holy God a Savior who is able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses. God bless.